Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm here, Charles Eisenstein here with Judith Schwartz. I'll call you Judy. Is that right? Absolutely. <clears throat> and yeah, Judy is the author of a couple books, maybe more than I know about, but the ones I've read are Cows Save the Planet and Water in Plain Sight. And we were just before we hit record, we were talking about water and how we got uh, here at the farm where I'm staying right now, we got like nine inches in two days, which um, we needed. But now I'm noticing all of the uh, healing that the land needs in order to slow down the water. Because, for example, there's a road, like a you know a little dirt road that the tractor drives on that now there's like these uh, erosion gullies starting in the road. And there's other things like that. And yeah, so I just thought, wow, what a coincidence that I'm talking to Judy Schwartz just when this stuff is calling for attention. So hi, Judy. Hi there. Yeah. What, are your, what are your thoughts on uh, land repair and the things that I was noticing today? Oh my goodness, do we need land repair? Yeah, um, so much of our built environment was built without thinking about water. So, you know, you look at a road and um, a road is many things, you know, a road is something that helps you get from one place to another. It's a place where um, you don't want wildlife to cross for fear that they would get run over by cars. But among other things, a road is a conveyor of water. So um, it just made me think about one time in my re reporting uh, for, for the book, I was out in far west Texas and I was um, in this really, really dry, hot, hot, hot area near Trilingua, where um, my colleagues, Catherine and Marcus Otmers, had a huge bunch of land that they'd been working to restore. And just as we were driving around on these dirt roads, just Catherine said that she's been, oh, and we kept having to stop to like get past uh, like a puddle or it, it, it was a big mess. This, this road was a mess. And she was saying, had the engineers like angled it a half inch differently, then that road would be holding water instead of becoming unpassable most of the time. Mm. Yeah, it's just not a design consideration. Absolutely, everything was about efficiency. Ooh, I said was. Could it be that things are changing? I, I don't know. Um, are, are things changing? Do you know, like, is this part of civil engineering now? To, I mean, I think that some things are changing. I know that, like, new housing developments and stuff often have 
uh, water retention ponds or something like that? Yeah, I think it is changing, uh, changing a bit. It's certainly in that people are beginning to talk about these things. And I know that in Los Angeles, they're definitely beginning to talk about it because, I mean, what I learned is, you know, even in the driest times in, say, Los Angeles, that billions of gallons of water are lost because our built environment is built just to sluice water away. I mean, so here it is a rainy day here, you know, and I'm so happy because it ha it's been so dry, but so often we just think about a rainy day in terms of us humans and that it might inconvenience us. And we don't think about what the landscape is, is begging for. And then when we get the rain, we haven't been thinking about what to do with that rain. And absolutely, when you said the need to slow the water down, um, really what we want, you know, you know, like the way that we think about things in engineering and society is we want everything to be fast and streamlined. But nature, in terms of the water cycle, wants to be slowed down and to meander. We want water to meander so that it can linger in the landscape and, and, and stay in the landscape. Yeah, and so this is actually a much more deeply disruptive concept than first meets the eye. Because if you really have a water-oriented approach to the built environment, you, you have to do away with, in many cases, things like straight lines uh, or fixed property lines because in, in doing the research for my book, I read this account of uh, old geographic surveys that were commissioned by the United States government in like, you know, 1790 something, or even maybe some by, by colonial governments before then, that mapped out the various types of terrain and the waterways and stuff. And according to this, to this guy who had gone back and looked at all these old surveys, most of the streams and creeks that are on maps today were not on those maps. And instead you had marshes and bogs and wetlands and so forth. And he says that was because the beavers had, yacht, had not yet been exterminated. So the beavers would slow down sometimes as many as 10 or 20 beaver dams per mile. Uh, they would prevent the water from I mean, it would take a very long time for the water to reach the larger rivers and then the ocean. So it would have time to sink back down into the aquifers. So the whole land was, was the whole shape of the land was different. And if we're talking about really healing the water, that partially means bringing back beavers. And then if you have property lines that are defined by, by waterways or, you know, property that could be inundated when a beaver builds a dam and changes the course of the water like that's i mean what are we going to do with that you know what, what about the titles and deeds and and i mean the whole economy that depends on having fixed property lines yeah very these are really 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 big questions and funny you should mention beavers because i think that that's where the conversation, what, that, that is one conversation that is beginning to happen. I mean, I've seen magazines with beavers on the cover. I mean, it helps, of course, that beavers are very, like, cuddly looking and sweet. But there is the Bring Back the Beaver campaign in California at the 
um, at Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. And there's a new book on beavers. I don't know if you know about it. It no. is called, appropriately enough, Eager. And that's getting a lot of press. And beavers are definitely like a great poster mammal for, you know, for the need to work with the water cycle. And one really interesting thing about, about thinking about slowing down the water and the role of creatures like beavers is that, you know, like we think, okay, so when I, when I was doing this research on, when I was explore, doing the exploration of writing the book, Water in Plain Sight, I wrote about water, the connection between water and biodiversity. And while certainly it made sense that having a healthy water cycle would support greater biodiversity. I mean, you know, that seemed evident. But what was so surprising to me and what you're calling attention to is the extent to which biodiversity helps the water cycle, helps keep the water cycle in balance by slowing down the water and allowing it to infiltrate and be there and, you know, be sustained in the system as opposed yes. to every um, the water just um, you know sluicing away or evaporating so beavers are a great example and depending on your landscape there are all other kinds of creatures so in the west prairie dogs were really important to the water cycle because they would burrow and create these um, little obstacle courses for water to flow and earthworms and all the different soil megafauna <laughs> you know i love that we call earthworms soil megafauna <laughs> but yeah so 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 okay so let's let's explore the water cycle a little little further because okay so the water is slowed down and does but so what like does what does this have to do with climate change with with the droughts that we're seeing the flooding like can you draw the link there all right. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at some water processes. Ooh, I sound very science teacher-ish. Yeah. So what became clear to me in exploring this, okay, I'll tell you why I wrote this book. Okay. I'd written okay. a book about soil. All right. So Cow Save the Planet is a look at soil as a hub for many environmental, economic, and social crises and for solutions. Okay. So there were two things. One thing is that about the time that I finished the book on soil, the California drought was in full swing and it was bringing national attention to the topic of water. And what made me absolutely nuts is that all the focus was what, what, what was or wasn't coming down from the sky and land wasn't mentioned at all, okay? So there, there was one headline, one article and a headline that you know, was great in catching attention. It was something like, like California needs 11 trillion Olympic-sized swimming pools to get over worth of rain to get over the drought. Yeah. And that just like amused me to no end because land wasn't mentioned at all. So if you had a degraded landscape, which much of, or degraded land, landscape combined with a built environment that allows for no infiltration of water, well then you could have that much water and more and then you'll be, back in drought mode within a few months. However, if you have healthy, carbon-rich soil that's soaking in water and there are beavers up north in California that are slowing down the water and all that, well, then maybe you'll only need like, you know, a couple of billion kiddie pools worth of water. So, you know, the simply, because, simply because it won't run off right away, it'll soak into the aquifers. Exactly, into the aquifers, into the land itself so that 
you would farmers would need less irrigation. Um, they would be more resilient to drought. Um, gardeners wouldn't need to to irrigate, you know, to to water their their lawns, golf courses. You know, if, right. if, if, if so, having water held in the land means. And I'll, I'll, I'll add to that too that that the more water that the soil can hold, then the longer it is available there. Uh, excuse the rooster. <laughs> the longer it is available for trees to draw on, and then they transpire the water and they elevate the humidity, and then that extends the rainy season past where it would be just from the clouds that blow in from elsewhere. So it actually, you actually need, like less water goes a lot further if you have healthy soil. Absolutely, yes, healthy soil is key. The way that many of us are starting to talk about it is the soil carbon sponge. Okay, so when I first got interested in soil and soil and climate, okay, I'll, I'll just finish what I, what I was saying. Okay, so the reason that I wrote the book Water in Plain Sight was that it made me nuts that what, that land wasn't being talked about in the context when people were fretting about water. And then the other thing is that when people talk about the connection between water and climate change, the discussion only goes in one direction which is that climate change will put added stress on water sources throughout, throughout the world. And of course, that is a concern. However, no one until now, until what you're doing and more people are doing, is that people had not been talking about the implications of water and the water cycle on climate. And this is where we have tremendous opportunity. And you were alluding to it just now with that, what you were talking about, the trees transpiring. So another thing in writing this book is that I saw that while water is often looked at as a noun, you know, like water is like this thing, you know, that you get some and I get some, and if I want more, then we'll fight about it, you know, or that kind of thing. But water is really a verb, or we can understand water as a verb. Water is always in motion, and what it is doing in motion is tremendous, has tremendous impact on not only the availability of water, but the conveying of heat. And that is just so extraordinary. Right. So talk about the conveying of heat. Okay. All right. Wow. I'll put my, my um, you know, scientific head on. Yeah. So water conveys heat more effectively. It holds and transfers heat than any other substance. And so... You know, we know in a vague sense, in the kind of like a, a, a childhood explanation of, of the way things work and why we get rain, we understand the, the water cycle that we have water and it evaporates and goes into the atmosphere, becomes cloud, and then we get rain, you know, in this, this nice circle. But what's re also really important about that is that that is transferring heat. So when water evaporates, okay, let's take a tree. You mentioned a tree. A tree is a really great place to start. So a healthy tree, like a nice full leaf tree, transpires a vast amount of water in a day. Now that transpiration, that is a cooling process. So 
I think I'm, I'm trying to remember um, a Czech botanist that I, whose work I find really interesting. He said that the average tree will transpire, like the amount of energy that it consumes to, which means that that energy is by transferring that water, what that the tree pulls up into vapor, water vapor, that uses energy and therefore cools. So when we're around trees, we feel cooler. We know that. And a lot, part of that is the shade, but part of that is the transpiration process. Yes. I, I've, I looked into this quite extensively also and, and found some anecdotes uh, in the literature. Like there's one, I, actually this wouldn't be an anecdote. This is actually a pretty careful study of, of uh, areas in Kenya comparing the temperature in forested areas to the temperature in equivalent, like topographically equivalent areas that had been deforested and had been forested, you know, until recently. And it might be like 19 degrees Celsius in the forested area and 50 degrees Celsius in the deforested area. Yeah, it's, so, yeah, it's, it's just, unbelievable. Yeah the difference that that makes. And I know the research that you're talking about, that's the fellow that I mentioned, Jan Pokorny, who's gone up in a Cessna and he does work in, he does work in Kenya and he's been working in the area of the Mao forest. It's a big source of water and people, people have intuitively understood the connections between force and water, but the level at which we're starting to understand this really drives home just how important forests are because forests are actually creating their own water. So we talked about slowing water down on the land, but in some ways, or depending on the environment and certainly in jungle environments, rainforests, we want a fast water cycle. So you like, so in the Amazon rainforest, that water is transpiring from the trees and then basically going up, becoming cloud and coming down as rain again. So in those environments, when they're healthy and functioning, like one drop of water will be cycling and staying in that environment many, many times before that drop of water leaves. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot more to this. I'm, I'm not sure if we want to go into the biotic pump and all that, but just to fill in the blank there, you were talking about, so the, the water, when it evaporates or is transpired through vegetation, it cools the air and it absorbs heat, basically, when it goes through that phase change. Right, it becomes latent heat instead right. of sensible heat, which is the heat you can feel. So when you were talking about the cleared land, so then, then you get sensible heat, and that's why it was so hot. So then yeah. what happens... So then this, this water vapor then rises and when it gets high enough and it's cool enough up there, it condenses again and then it releases the heat that it had absorbed on the surface. So it's transferring heat from ground level up into the atmosphere. And then the question for me was how much of that then is radiated back, you know, down to the earth and how much of that is radiated out into space? Because Presumably, some of it would be radiated out into space, which means that healthy evapotranspiration actually helps cool the Earth. Yes. 
which is yes, it does. You know, I looked extensively, like um, in climate research, because the the in most of the the models that I saw, one of the accelerators of climate change that is in the models is that the warmer it gets, the more evaporation there is, and the more evaporation there is, the more uh, water vapor there is, and the more water vapor there is, because water vapor is also a greenhouse gas, the hotter yes. it gets. So it's a feedback, a positive feedback runaway process that they're looking at, which amplifies the basic climate forcing. Because if it's just CO2, you have to double CO2 to get, I can't remember, like like one degree of warming or something like that, but uh, which isn't that much cause for concern. But if it is amplified through all these other processes, and the key one is water vapor, then it's a much bigger problem. So I'm like, okay, that's in the models, but what about the vertical heat transfer that we're talking about and then also what about the you know effect of clouds in reflecting heat and so forth and it gets really really complicated like i don't even know how you could model that that's been a challenge and there's a scientist that i um that i work with a lot you know i um interview him a lot and have traveled with him named walter yenna from australia Mm. and he actually shows that because it was so complex, there was a decision to stick with CO2 in terms of modeling. In other words, the complexity of these dynamics is a discouragement to really focus on them in communication. So I'm pretty sure I would want to check with Walter, but I do think that it does, that much of that heat is released higher up where it's dispersed. The other thing to think about, which Walter points out, is that that dynamic, when there's no transpiration, when there's bare soil or there's a built environment, that that's creating kind of a re-radiating of heat. So that heat is really kind of not only staying, but kind of multiplying on itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I'd like to think about it, I, th- I think it's, it's useful is to just think of like, okay, so when we talk about energy and the connection between energy and climate, we're often talking about, you know, that which fuels our cars and heats our home. Okay, that whole energy conversation. But it can be useful to think about energy in its most basic elemental sense of what happens to solar radiation when it comes to the earth. So if you have... Okay, so we've got two landscapes. So we've got bare, desertified soil where nothing is growing, like those cleared areas in Kenya that you described. So parking lots. Absolutely, parking lots. So when the sun hits the earth, that heat has nowhere else to go but to kind of stay there and be hot. That sensible heat that's heating up the ground and the surface of the earth really can gets can get very hot hotter than the air temperature i mean you know that if you've um, been on stood on pavement on a hot day so that just sits there and and generates heat is heat and generates heat but let's say that we were in um, on a nice healthy meadow like i hope we're creating here in in my um, place in vermont by in part having sheep graze it so let's say you have a really nice healthy meadow and lots of different flowers and everything. Then when that solar energy strikes the surface, it's 
it, the, the heat is dispersed and consumed by, through the process of transpiration. So, I mean, again, you intuitively know that on a hot day, and if you were barefoot, you would rather be in the meadow rather than on, on bare soil or the parking lot. So it's dispersing it. Right. Yeah. So um, I know there's more. I want to I just, I had another thought here that I wanted to weave into the conversation, which is, and it's related to the difficulty in modeling certain things, which leads to us, leads scientists to model the things that are easy to model and the things that are hard to model then get neglected. One of the things that's hardest to model is the effect of life on any system because life is, you know, not linear. Um, it's, it's hard to reduce it to a set of variables. So you also talked about this prejudice that, that says that, you know, it's always talking about the effect of climate change on, on water, but not the effect of water on climate change, which is another thing that's harder to model. And I think underneath all of this, there is an implicit bias that I call the geomechanical bias, which says essentially that the climate is primarily governed by physical forces, the spin of the earth, which generates winds, wind patterns and currents and the radiation of the sun and the composition of the atmosphere. Like these are physical um, and simple chemical, uh, fluid dynamic, easy to model forces. And it, this conception of the earth as like essentially a really complicated machine minimizes or leads us to neglect the influence of life. In contrast to the geomechanical views, what I'm calling a living planet view, which says that life creates the conditions under which life itself can thrive. And that the, uh, the influence of living systems on these physical parameters is much, much bigger than we appreciated. And the reason we haven't appreciated it is that we are not in our, in our culture, in the scientific culture, going back hundreds of years, we are not used to seeing the world outside of ourselves as alive. We see it instead as the vehicle for life. Uh, and, and life is this kind of uh, happenstantial scum on top of an orbiting rock. And it, where there's lots of rain, the forests grow. When there isn't much rain, there, there's deserts, you know, and, and life is dependent on these geomechanical and solar forces, which on some level there is truth in that, right? Like if the sun winked out, like there wouldn't be any life anymore. So it's not that, you know, we're independent. We, life, it's not that we're independent of the, the sun and the spin of the earth and the, all this kind of stuff, but this mechanical, mechanistic prejudice has made us not see just how important life processes are. And so we've talked about that. Yeah, we talked about, you talked about that a little bit, you know, about the, yeah. how the, um, the... Biodiversity is important for the movement exactly. of water. Right. Yeah, yeah, this is such an interesting observation um, because in so many aspects of science, biology or life has been diminished in the discussion. So as you mentioned, our climate conversation has been dominated by physics. 
and biology has been left out. If you look at soil science, that has been dominated by geology, which is why it is still in textbooks that it takes 500 years to create an inch of topsoil because that's the mineral fraction. That's geology working on itself. That's the wearing of rocks. But when you bring biology into the conversation, well, people are building inches of topsoil in, within a year. So that's another thing. And then I'll just go to, to agriculture. So agricultural science has been driven by chemistry and biology has been left out. And that's why we have the agricultural system that we have where, you know, like soil is considered basically a kind of stage set for food production. And now finally people are starting to understand the importance of living soil for healthy food. And some of that I think has been driven by our awareness of our own microbiome and how once we see that, then we understand that, you know, the soil has, is a micro, is a microbiome, has its own microbiome and macrobiome too. So bringing, bringing life into these discussions is, is not only, it, it's, it's many things, it's more real, it gives us more opportunities. And it's also, yeah, I mean, my shift has been lately towards thinking about whole ecosystems and, you know, not necessarily kind of let's, you know, draw down X amount of carbon into living soil through uh, photosynthesis and, and through um, bringing that carbon, through healthy plants, bringing carbon back into the ground. That's, all, that's kind of a, a side benefit of a healthy ecosystem. So yeah. if we work on ecosystem levels, then we're working on climate, we're working on biodiversity, we're um, enhancing human health, human well-being, all of the above. Yes, that's, yeah, that's very, very much in line with the way my thinking has evolved as well, where, you know, I, like soil, I see it as one of the organs of Gaia. And if we have healthy organs, we're going to have a healthy planet. And if we don't have healthy organs, but instead try to, to maintain health by controlling proportions of atmospheric gases, then even if we develop machines to suck carbon out of the air, which, you know, this is a, a major area of research right now, you know, to have giant carbon sucking machines in every city, uh, even if we do that, the planet is still not going to be healthy. Just like you won't be healthy if you're, say you have, I don't know, what is it, your hypothalamus or something that maintains body temperature at a healthy level. Like if you're health, if you're, hypothalamus starts malfunctioning, then you might be able to prolong life by being in a perfectly climate-controlled environment where you're never too hot and never too cold. Like if you don't have a good ability to sweat and to shiver or to speed up or slow down your metabolism and, and do all these things that your organs have to do, that one result of it is a healthy body temperature, then yeah, you're not going to be healthy. Even if your temperature is, is okay, something else is going to break down. And, and this is like, I just feel like from a living planet view, our priorities are going to shift 
toward the organs, toward the soil, toward the trees, toward the biodiversity, toward the wetlands. And, and this is just, I don't know if you'd like to modify what I'm saying or amplify or-, or Oh, I'm, I'm completely with you. And what I, and I'm hearing the, this conversation more and more, actually, you know, we're only on audio, so you didn't see me smile when you talked about, about the organs of the earth, because I have been hearing this conversation more and more. And it's, it's very interesting that a colleague, someone I, I know who's got this very, very interesting ecosystem restoration project going on, or that they're working on in the Sinai, um, there's an, a region in the Sinai Peninsula that um, they think about as people are talking about acupuncture or acupressure points of the earth. And this is one of them. And when they looked at, they were able to see the, the river beds in this region and through satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. And it really, really looks like a heart with the veins and the arteries. I mean, it's almost you know, almost, you know, chilling just how vivid this is. Wow. Uh, and, and another fellow um, who I'm writing about in my new book talks about this as well. This is someone named Zach Weiss, who is not yet 30 and has been all over the world doing ecosystem restoration projects because he had the incredible good fortune to work very closely with someone named Sepp Holzer. Oh, yes. Who is one of the, you know, you know kind of, forerunners of work in permaculture. And Zach talks about this. And it's interesting because he's come to this through his own observation. So when he speaks about this, when he gives talks, he says about this, he, he, he articulates this from such a place of knowing. Whereas, you know, it's you know, I'm coming to this, but this is through years of kind of well, you know, I, I mean, the fact that I even wrote a book about soil still kind of blows me away because that wasn't where my path would lead at all. One would think my path would lead at all. You know, it's taken me a long time to get to this realm of, of thinking. So um, it, it doesn't come from the same place. And so I always, that always makes me very happy when I hear someone like a young person like Zach talk. For many people, and I'm among them, soil has been kind of a gateway drug to Gaia. <laughs> you know, so many people concerned about climate they, like myself, came to understand that, oh, the flip side of too much CO2 in the atmosphere is that the carbon in the soil has been depleted. And so once you bring that carbon back into the soil, once you're able to create that carbon sponge, well, then you're able to hold more water, which, makes, which means resilience to floods and droughts. And when we haven't mentioned flooding, but that's also an important part of this about slowing water down is, is minimizing floods. But also when you restore the soil, you also have healthier food, you have greater biodiversity because biodiversity starts in the soil and actually something like 90% of all life forms are in the soil. Mm -hmm. Biodiversity and healthy food and healthy economies and local resilience. So everything just, it was kind of like a, wow, soil does all this. So, and then when you start exploring from there and you start to see the water cycle, it's not only the water, how water moves across the landscape, but that's important, but also how water moves through the atmosphere that has a huge significance.
for uh, all for you know maintenance of our communities, landscapes, um, the conveyance of heat, and everything. And taking that further, how all of that depends on life. There is one thing that I came to through writing the book about water, which I didn't expect at all, was just the extent to which how much plants are running the show. Never, never thought that. I, I, I'll just quote this one person, um, an Aus another Australian named Peter Andrews, who developed something called natural sequence farming. Mm -hmm. And in one of his books, it was either beyond the brink or back from the brink, he made a statement that crystallizes this. He said that plants manage water and in managing water, they are managing heat. And wow, plants are doing so much more for us than we have any idea. Yes, for me, it invites a real shift of emphasis, which in you know, the environmental movement, where today it's, so much of the conversation is about fossil fuels and transitioning away from fossil fuels. And that kind of relegates to secondary status. Traditional environmental issues that I think are actually, from a living planet view, actually more important, which would be to, like you said, plants. I mean, you know, under what conditions do plants thrive? Do they thrive when you drain the wetlands to build a port to export commodities from, from Ecuador and raise GDP? Or do plants thrive when you take care of the soil and protect the wetlands? And, and you know, it's, it's, I find that it's more revolutionary to take a living planet view than it is to simply say, okay, well, we have to switch our energy sources to something renewable. Like, yeah, like I'm in favor of clean, non-polluting energy. The, the real revolution is to become participants in the totality of life on Earth, rather than dominating it, stripping it, and seeing it as a mere provider of resources. Like we have to join the community, you know? And, and that's- Absolutely, you, you, you totally nailed it. Because one concern that I have about the narrative that we have when, when we talk about global warming, it's kind of a code for too much CO2, global warming from, when we talk about climate change, it's code for, too, for global warming from too much CO2 in the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels. Not only does that kind of limit our view of it, it also limits our agency. Because what can we do there besides switch to solar? I mean, even a few years ago, it was basically change our light bulbs and protest pipelines. And certainly we need to do that. We need to get off fossil fuels. But if we open it up to a living planet view, then there is so much we can do. So an alternate way of thinking about climate change that I use just kind of, you know, as a leaping off point is we can understand climate change as manifestations of distorted carbon, water, and energy cycles. So, you know, that opens it up. I mean, it's still sort of in a cold, lifeless language. However, there is so much that we can do to restore balance in the carbon, water, and energy cycles, you know, and the carbon, and the, these cycles follow each other. So if we 
restore the carbon, work towards restoring the carbon cycle by bringing carbon into the, into the soil through healthy plants that are photosynthesizing and drawing carbon down into the roots, into the soil, so that, and, and that serves the health of the plants because that allows for a lot of underground trading. So the plant trades that carbon for nutrients, which allows it to be healthier. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of, so anyway, by doing that, you're also helping to restore the water cycle. And by restoring the water cycle, you're also restoring the energy cycle. Because when you have those healthy plants transpiring, the energy cycle, you know, the solar energy that comes down is able to, um, that energy is able to move through the plants and be dispersed and rather than kind of sitting there and just accumulating. Yeah. I recently put an article out called Why I'm Afraid of Global Cooling. And I chose that title to be provocative. And boy, it was provocative. There was definitely some um, pretty intense reactions to it. And one of, the, one of the things I've said in there is, I'm like, yeah, you know, greenhouse gas emissions are causing or are going to cause warming, but who knows what other nonlinear processes are at work, what the effect of solar fluctuations is, et cetera, et cetera. And to pin everything, to pin all of environmentalism onto this, onto this um, one issue seems really dangerous to me. Because if we are destroying the organs and tissues that maintain suitable conditions for life, then we could end up, yeah, we could end up with runaway warming, but we could also end up with wild gyrations of warming and cooling that are hard to pin down to any one source. And, you know, you you mentioned like plants. I, I just want to return to plants here, that plants are actually pretty new on this planet out of four point some billion years of earth history and over three billion of those years was bacteria only basically then maybe a billion years ago algae and one-celled plants and and and, like it's only been like huge amounts of terrestrial plants i think are only a few hundred million years old uh maybe four or five hundred million years right permian carboniferous era and it's interesting like since that time the climate has been more stable. Before we had plants, we had episodes of snowball earth where like, like these ice ages that covered the entire planet, you know, like we had terrible fluctuations. And since we've had plants, the climate has become more stable. I mean, still like it was way, way warmer in the time of the dinosaurs and so on. And, and even in the Holocene, it's been, there've been, you know, some pretty large fluctuations, the uh, Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, et cetera, the little ice age. But, but I think it's, we can thank the plant world and by extension, life in general, the insects, you know, the animals, um, we can thank that for having a stable enough climate to nourish higher life forms, as we like to call ourselves. So yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's it's really interesting and and sometimes I wonder, well, I guess I guess if we if it if the conversation is limited to CO2, it allows us as people to com- compartmentalize and okay, we just have to solve this one problem. And there are experts, there are physicists, there are people with PhDs who are going to solve the problem. 
but anyway, it kind of separated out from ourselves instead of this this living view. And and one thing that I've I've wondered is, you know, why why have we as thinking people allowed this to happen? You know, allowed this conversation to be kind of you know to be so narrow rather than making a very basic inquiry, which is how does the earth manage heat? Mm-hmm. And that, that just brings us right to, as you were saying, the plants, which are helping to manage the water cycle, helping to move um, water vapor from here to there, which is conveying the heat. I mean, it's really just such a beautiful, beautiful system when you open it up and look at, look at how it all works. And plants are also dependent on animals. And it's, I mean, just these synergies, when you start to see them and, and you know, when we allow ourselves to see them and not just think about, I mean, you know, okay, so I wrote a book called Cows Save the Planet. There are people out there that think that the earth will be better off if we just eliminate cows. And I mean, that's astounding to not, you know, for us not to really look into, of course, many people are looking into this, but, you know, how animals are also helping to, to create and manage our ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get, sometimes I get flack also for, for citing you or Alan Savory or people like that who are using livestock for land repair because um you know not acknowledging the methane that they make and playing into the hands of the meat industry and so forth and then if i you know get into the conversation either they'll say well you know alan savory's work has been debunked and they cite these this uh george monbiot article and end of conversation which it's it's not actually the end of the conversation there's you know a lot of when that Debunking has been debunked, but then who are you going to believe? You know, maybe the debunking of the debunking has been debunked too. Also, then what they'll say to me is, yes, sometimes they'll, they'll say, yes, herd animals are an important part of the ecosystem, but we shouldn't eat them. We should use them for land regeneration, but not eat them because it's cruel. And that's a, I don't know, I'm curious what you, what, what you have to say about that. Well, I would say that's completely a personal decision, but I would really, really, I'd, I'd really want people to understand that, okay, so the, the, okay, first of all, where you source your animals makes a huge difference. I mean, the industrial meat industry is just so, so harmful on so many levels and so cruel to the animals. I mean, that includes dairy too, conventional dairy. I mean, has these animals in very, I mean, unfortunately, it's like there's a place down the road for me where um, to be able to make a living, dairy farmers have to have so many animals in, um, to, you know, they have to have that much kind of economies of scale in, uh, to produce milk. And they're all together and across the street from where the animals are, they're growing GMO corn to feed the animals. I mean, that is wrong on so many, so many levels. I mean, yes, industrial meat is really a problem, but, the, but there are animals that have a really, really good life 
and are raised well and the meat is healthy and the um, animals are healing the land as well. And I'm very fortunate that I happen to know farmers that are doing this so I can, so I can feel okay about purchasing meat there. But an, an argument that, but that's a very personal decision whether or not you eat meat and, and that's up to, up to everybody what feels right for them. But what concerns me more is the argument that by going vegan, that's the best thing that you can do for the planet. And I really understand the desire to do something tangible that you feel that, I mean, to do something tangible and to, to do something that is sacrificing for yourself. Because I think people really do want to do something and are willing to, you know, to put themselves out there. However, what often isn't talked about is how damaging to the land a lot of our grain and vegetable production is. You know, and you take something like tofu, which seems ecologically benign and even virtuous, and the amount of clearing of land in Brazil and the Amazon, the amount of that's for soy production, the amount of chemicals that are going into soy production right now and the monocultures that are destroying biodiversity and the insect life and just just the clearing of the land itself for production that there's there had been or there might may have been wildlife i mean mm-hmm. there's so many reasons that our conventional agricultural system is a problem and Yes. So, so, you know, yeah. So not eating meat or going vegan is not in itself absolving you. We are all part of the system, whether we like it or not. Yeah. I mean, this gets into a lot of other issues. Uh, maybe I'll say a little bit about it. Uh, first, the go vegan advocate would say, well, for one thing, it's not enough just to go vegan. Also, we should go organic and raise our plants and vegetables in the most ecological way possible. And to the extent that it is causing harm, most of the soy in Brazil is being raised for animal feed anyway. So we would have to have a lot less of it if it were going directly to humans. Uh, and so that's kind of the outline of the argument. But I think that, and as far as the, they would also say as far as the ethically raised meat and so forth, hey, you're still you know, killing baby animals and eating them. Really what, they, then they would, if you, I've had, you know, more involved conversations and they say, you know, really what we need is, because I say, well, in nature, baby animals are killed all the time. I mean, that's most of the animals that are killed. You know, your average rabbit, mother rabbit might give birth to 50 or 100 baby rabbits over her reproductive lifetime. How many of them actually grow up? On average, maybe two to maintain population. So maybe more of, of like an integration of death into our consciousness that is not part of our culture. We're kind of separated from that. And we right. separate ourselves from death by many, many ways, you know, ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist and uh, attach ourselves to money and possessions as if we were going to live forever. Like there's a whole culture of denying death and therefore of non-participation in life. Right. And so I think like, yeah, like that's part of it. But yeah, I think, I think I'll just add to that, 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 that I think that that is a reflection of our um, separation from the land. And then what happens is, and, and I certainly understand it, a kind of sentimentaliz- sentimentalizing of the animals. Right. 
So now, yeah. then you could, so then the next place, so if the vegan advocate goes there, then she will say, well, obviously then we need predators again. So to introduce wolves and cougars so that, that the herd animals can exercise their proper function. Because that's, you know, the, the, the apex predators are, are crucial for herbivores to do their land maintenance work. That's what makes them gather into herds rather than disperse everywhere and overgraze. So, so the, but then you're kind of saying, yeah, we should step away from nature and step away from the world. And you get this vision of humans living in these bubble cities while the rest of the nature is, rest of nature is out there untouched. And we've kind of abstracted ourselves away from, from materiality, which has been a implicit goal or sometimes explicit goal of civilization, you know, that we become more spiritual, less material, or more technological, and we upload our consciousness into computers and so forth. So the, like, I feel like there's like really big um, meta issues here going on. And w without an appreciation for these meta issues, people get stuck in intractable polarizing debates that never can be resolved because the real issues are not brought to the surface. And this polarization, like we see it with the vegan issue, the you know, meat issue, the two sides fighting with each other, like, you know, I, and this is one of a few polarizing issues that I get emails, you know, entitled, shame on you, Charles. And I'm like, but actually we're allies. We both love and care for this planet. And on, on, as far as like actual practical things that need to change, we probably agree on 99% of them. We probably, you know, we, we agree on the um, industrial meat industry. We probably agree on the industrial vegetable industry. We're probably both horrified at those miles and miles of row of, of you know, in, in the Central Valley in California, the vegetable farms where, where a single field of, of cabbage or carrots goes as far as the eye can see without, without a weed in sight because of the, the herbicides. Like we're appalled by that. We're, we're like, we're, so somehow these polarizing issues and I'm seeing that climate, um, especially greenhouse gases has become another one of these polarizing issues that, you know, I, I read some of the skeptic or denial or whatever you want to call them sites. I like to be polite. I like to call them skeptics. And I think that epithets like denialist prevent any conversation from happening. But anyway, like having aligned with a certain political poll, then they are opposed to pretty much any environmental regulation or protection where, because we've kind of divided the issue into two sides and I don't know, I'm just kind of going off my rant here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally, totally with you that a lot of energy, a lot of human psychic energy does get spent in these kind of, you know, staking down one's turf of opinion and, you know, being against that. Whereas I think it would be really, really helpful for us to perhaps rally around the question of what kind of world do we want? Because it's there. We can restore our ecosystems. We can restore the water cycle and the carbon cycle. And, you know, and you say 
um, about for people to become more spiritual and live in bubbles. My goodness, how can people be spiritual? Or what opportunities are there for spirituality if, when one is totally disconnection, disconnected from nature, which is what has fueled the human spirit as long as we've been around? Well, it's a problematic conception of spirituality. You know, you can plug your brain into a hemi-sync device or something. But yeah, I agree with you. Maybe, Judy, I'd like to know if you mentioned some, you mentioned Sepp Holzer, uh, Zach Weiss, Walter Yena, Yena, yeah. Um, What are some of the things that, like, if people want to, like, read or watch really cutting edge, exciting stuff that gives gives us hope, and that you think is like, yeah, this is the direction humanity needs to go. Can you? um, Sure, sure, happy to do that. Well, as it happens, I'm writing a book about this topic myself. So um, my new book that I'm, well, I've just finished one chapter. I'm at that nerve wracking stage when I've got many chapters kind of, you know, many blank pages ahead of me. It's called Restoration Flash Mob. Mm. And it's basically about restoring the earth. Let's restore the earth and people in different ecosystems that are exploring ways to do that. And so um, another thing, you know, you're talking, I hear that you, you're responding a lot to the feedback you get, the questions that people bring to you. Well, when people, a lot of the questions that people bring to me are, okay, well, that's fine that they're restoring land in Zimbabwe, but what can I do here on my land? So I have, in this book, I have a narrative thread of, of working to restore our land here in Vermont. We have about 12 acres and it's just play. It's just, okay, Let's see what we can do. How do we think about it? How do we think about, about making the use, the, the most of, of having a healthy water cycle on this land? And for that, we had Zach Weiss here and he said some amazing things and that was all very inspiring. Um, actually, I'll just, I'll share one thing that he said that I thought was really, really interesting. Okay, because the very fact of our homes and driveways and decks and whatever um, are dwellings consist of the very fact of them has altered the water cycle in our natural environment because of that for us to kind of even things out water cycle wise we can attempt to make the water cycle even better Mm. on our land so i mean that's something to think about that really i thought was really really interesting and then he talked about he helped us see how working with the forests that are part of our land that have been logged, what we might want to think about to restore the water cycle using the trees. Anyway, it was very, very interesting. And also towards that end, we also have sheep because, you know, I've been writing about people restoring the land with animals. So I figured let's just try it out here and see what happens. And it's been amazing. And much of what has been amazing has been the has just been the presence of these beautiful animals, you know, the love that we get that just from being around them, the amusement, you know, their silly baas, their silly bleats and how each animal has its own voice. Anyway, that's been um, um, really amazing. I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll share, uh, I can share a little, a little bit. So there's a fellow that, I don't know if you know the work of John D. Liu. Oh yeah, John Liu, yeah. Yeah, okay. So my first chapter is about John and you know it's really really extraordinary how 
little, how few people know about the restoration of the Los Plateau. Yes. Because, yeah, so, so John's a really interesting character. He had been a cameraman for networks, and, you know, he was living this kind of high adrenaline life, like, you know, covering um, the modernization of China and yes. the fall of the Soviet Union. And then in 1995, the World Bank hired him to document the restoration of the Los Plateau. And basically, this area, the Los Plateau is an area about the size of France, but their active restoration was an area about the size of Belgium. And over like 10, 12 years, he saw this land go from what was basically a moonscape where you had people who were completely dependent on outside aid with their animals like you know going up a hill maybe you know there was one last little blade of grass on the hill yes and going from this horrible you know this like you know devastated area where people were in horrible poverty to an area where the ecosystem is functioning lifting millions of people out of poverty people have orchards people have are growing food again people are celebrating their lives again, children are being educated again. So, I mean, he saw this and over time, and basically his response was, okay, I know that we can restore large scale degraded ecosystems. Well, since we know that, since I know that, I need to devote the rest of my life to this. So um, he has some wonderful, wonderful films that you could find on YouTube, John D. Liu. L-I-U. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite one is um, for the Good Geld, the postcode lottery talk in Amsterdam. And he gave that very prestigious talk last year, 2017. The year before was George Clooney. Um, John likes to talk Mm -hmm. about that. (laughs) Um, So he's one person. There are a number of podcasts that are really, really great. Uh, One is called Earth Repair Radio. And another is investing in regenerative agriculture. Hmm. And those are the first two that come to mind. I'm, I know there are more that I'm neglecting. But also people might, might ha- I don't know if people have seen Jeff Lawton's work on greening the desert. Mm-hmm. So he was able to grow food in an, like a totally plantless, dried out desert area in Jordan. And what's interesting about that is that you know, that in itself is a really interesting project. That has inspired a whole new generation of people working in the desert. And I'm writing about a few of those in this new book. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's a fellow named Neil Spackman who is working with the Bedouin, uh, degraded landscape in, with the Bedouin in, in Saudi Arabia. And right now, They've got the ecological system going so that they don't need irrigation to keep these trees alive. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot, a real lot. This, I mean, this I think is some of the most important work that's happening on this earth right now. And it's, I love the word land repair because it is repairing ruin that has, that is centuries or even thousands of years old. Like some of these deserts, in the Middle East, where you know the geomechanical model says, well, it's because rainfall patterns or whatever, but they didn't used to be deserts. Right. They, they there's 
if you read ancient sources, like they talked about woods and forests and, and even Plato wrote about, about how the springs are drying up because he understood very well why it was happening. He said it's because of deforestation. Like he right. described the actual process. So we're, we're reversing the negative impact of humanity and turning it into a positive impact. Like what could be more profound a revolution than that? Right. Like yes. Basic relationship to nature. And that's why this, I mean, these, these are the people that I just admire so much. And I'm happy to learn some of the names. You know, I, I tend, they tend for me to go in one ear and out the other. And I'm, hope, I hope people look into some of the things that you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll share just one, um, the way that Neil Spackman defines a desert that I think is really provocative and um, useful. Hmm. He says that a desert, because as you say, we tend to define it as how much rainfall does this land get? He says that a desert is a place where when it rains, it floods. Because mm -hmm. as soon as it's holding on to the water, it is no longer a desert. Then right. life begins to, to cycle, you know, and mm -hmm. you have plants growing. And when you have plants grow, go, growing, then you start to get the moisture kept on the landscape. And then you start to get clouds and rainfall. And there you go. So, mm -hmm. so there are very few true deserts. I think Namibia, the Namib Desert, and uh, I'm not sure what the other, which the other one was, but maybe part of the Sahara, or maybe in South America, the Atacama. But most of what we call deserts are really degraded landscapes. Yes. And there's huge potential to. Yes to restore these landscapes. And then of course, you know, just taking it a step further that it doesn't take long to start to figure out that it's in many of these degraded landscapes where there are ongoing land conflicts and insecurity and where pe people are, are leaving their land and we're getting the migrant challenges and people mm -hmm. who, so once you start restoring the land, we can reverse some of those negative social consequences as well. Yes, and I just wanted to, to footnote here that this is very different from a lot of what is called greening the desert, which actually means um, unsustainably pumping out the last remaining groundwater from the aquifers and using it to raise commodity crops for temporary economic gain. Like that's happening too. And what we're talking about is the opposite. What we're talking about is greening the desert in a way that replenishes the aquifers and is sustainable and self-reinforcing. So right. we have so to understand what's you know really going on here um, in order not to fall for slogans. Right, so it's greening it from within. Yes, you know, one thing I, uh, maybe we can kind of wrap it up with, with, with this, with one last thought here and you can respond just, one thing I like about the concept of land repair or living planet, you know, is that it gives us something to do personally in, 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 in relationship to the land that is right here and around us, rather than the dominant climate narrative, which, as you were saying, it's about kind of making these cosmetic changes that part of you is like, well, even if I do change my light bulbs and ride a bike instead of a car, then if everyone else doesn't do that, then then it won't make a difference. And if the politicians don't do the right thing, then it won't make a difference. 
if we think like thinking globally can have a disempowering effect and or you could even say well I'll, you know burn all the jet fuel i want and i'll offset it by putting money toward a forest somewhere else like it, it's it's a really different mentality than than acting in relationship in caring relationship to actual land that is in water and living beings that are around us on this farm or even smaller than a farm. I mean, on this little piece of, of earth here that has been temporarily given unto my care. The worth of it, the meaning, the, the satisfaction doesn't depend on global decisions by others. I mean, it do, still is influenced, of course, you know, if someone decides to spray Roundup on the adjoining property and it drifts over and destroys your plants too. Like, it's not like we're isolated, but it offers um, another wellspring of meaning and sense that I find really empowering and, and just like the, the joy and the pleasure of being in a healing relationship, I guess it, it kind of speaks for itself. Absolutely. I am totally with you. And, you know, one thing I'll say about having sheep is that it's helped me. It's, it's really enhanced my relationship with the land because I'm, I'm looking at the land differently, um, what they respond to and um, thinking about what would be good what, what what pieces of our property they would find most appetizing. Mm -hmm. And then also, just I can't look at lawns or green space the same way again. I keep seeing sheep food, you know? Uh -huh. It's amazing. I mean, when you think about all the time and the chemicals and the lawn mowing to get our land green, whereas here, you, I mean, this would be a great place for animals to, which would be, creating wool and um, hides and food if you choose to partake of it and and have and lovely beautiful animals so yeah, yeah. Um, there everybody has there's there's a way for every everybody to participate in this project of restoring the earth yes well thank you um, and do you have any last words uh, or use um, um, just, know, website kind of things like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so um, my website is just plain old judithdschwartz.com, mm -hmm. and my two books on these themes are "Cows Save the Planet" and "Water in Plain Sight." And I'm working on another book, and just in like a broad invitation to everybody, anybody, and everybody to to join this effort to restore the earth. Um, just letting you know, another another chapter in the book will be about the ecosystem restoration camp mm. in Spain, so that there are opportunities for people to go and train in these techniques and actually restore land in Spain. That I know many people in other areas are watching what's what happens there. But um, yeah, a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things. This has been A New and Ancient Story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. 
Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.